We'll be reading from John chapter 1, verse 19 to 34. John chapter 1, verse 19 to 34. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness, and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is John chapter 1, verse 19 to 34. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Cheryl, for reading scripture for us, and a very blessed Sunday to everyone. It is very good indeed to be up here and to see this room uh, closer as I remember it to be. And if you haven't had the chance, you might want to just glance on your left and right and awkwardly wave uh, at other masked people. But uh, you might want to do that just to say good morning to everyone. Well, uh, my name is Caleb, and uh, it's my joy to serve as one of the elders and to bring God's Word to us today from John 1. And I trust you'll keep your Bibles open as we hear God's Word. Please join me now as we go to God in prayer. Gracious Father, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Father, we pray in this hour that you would glorify Jesus Christ in this place. And we pray this in his name. Amen. 
For the Word in the beginning, the Word with God, the Word who was God, the life and the light of men, true light, the Word who became flesh, the only Son from the Father, the only God at the Father's side, Christ, Lord, Prophet, Lamb of God, Messiah, Rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of Joseph, the Son of God, the King of Israel, the Son of Man. Well, these are just about 20 names for Jesus that are recorded in the first three chapters of John's Gospel. And unlike Matthew, Mark, or Luke, which we call the three synoptic Gospels. Synoptic just means that they are seen together because they tell the story of Jesus' life and ministry in a, in a similar way. The fourth Gospel by John the Apostle is unique. There's no Christmas birth narrative here, no star to lead the wise men from the east, no humble shepherds dazzled by heavenly host, no angel Gabriel announcing Christ's birth. And some point out that, you know, because there are the Gospels that tell the story differently, the Bible must be contradictory and full of errors. So I'll repeat something I try to say every time I get the chance. Differences in the Bible are not contradictory, they're complementary, and they tell the account from different angles to help us know the fullness of Jesus Christ. And we should not be nervous when our non-Christian friends point out things like this to us, we can trust God's Word. But what we get in John's Gospel is a theological introduction to Jesus beginning all the way in eternity past. Last week we heard about this as Pastor Oliver ushered us into the Advent season. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Why does John write in such a unique way? Well, he tells us in John 20 verse 31 that by reading John, we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, we may have life in His name. Belief in Jesus gives us life in His name. Now, this Advent season, I wonder if your heart, after a long year, is aching for life. Life that comes from believing good news. In my own preparation for this sermon and for Advent, I've just been so aware of what a difficult and long and tiring year it has been. A friend came over for dinner and uh, shared this week how 2021 was a truly dark year for her. And she struggled to trust God struggled to draw close to Him. And I wonder if anyone here feels that way this Advent. My prayer is that we would hear John's Gospel, hear and believe Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and know life in His name. And we'll hear it from John, not in the announcement from Christmas angels, but in the voice of a man. John 1 verse 6 says that John was a man sent from God. And to be clear, this John is not John 
the writer of the book of John, it is John the Baptist or John the Baptizer, the son of Zechariah, the priest, and his wife, Elizabeth. Don't confuse the two. And uh, I'll just say right now, it's going to be confusing because there are sentences that will sound like John writes that John says that John... So it's going to be a little bit like this. But the focus on John the Baptist is because he is the first witness to Jesus. John 1, 7, 8. He bears witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. John 1, 15. John bore witness and cried out that Messiah comes after him. He precedes Messiah to announce his arrival. And today, in John 1, 19, that's the start of our text, we'll hear about the detailed testimony of John. If you're taking notes, two headers will be used uh, to understand this good news from John. First, the man who was not the Christ, and second, the Christ who was a lamb. Well, let's begin by looking at the background of this man. Well, John's birth closely resembles Old Testament miracle births, like the strong Samson, or the prophet Samuel, who inaugurates the Davidic dynasty. These are spirit-filled men that God uses to rescue Israel and do mighty work. And like them, John's birth is a miracle birth to a barren couple and announced by an angel. And when his father hears that news from the angel, he is filled with the Spirit and Zechariah bursts into this beautiful song. And he says, You child meaning John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise visits us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace." Now, Zechariah's song of blessing reminds us that Advent begins with darkness. The shadow of death hangs over all. Zechariah's song reminds us that Christmas is not just the time to let your heart be light because next year all our troubles will be out of sight. Advent begins with the gloom of sin, the gloom of death. Because all of us in sin are estranged from God, and we live in a world of sinful people. We are estranged from God's righteousness and His life. And all of us experience this heavy gloom. John 1 verse 5 establishes the same truth. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. But remember also that for 400 years, God's people had not heard the word of the living God. Yes, they had the scriptures, but not since the prophet Malachi. Was there a prophet in Israel who could declare, thus saith the Lord? Without a prophet, God's people could not inquire of God and know His will. And so in waiting for God's promises, there was 400 years of silence. For context, the United States, with its 47 presidents, is only 244 years old. You double that and you're close to 400 years of spiritual silence. 
And it is out of that silence that the voice in the wilderness begins to witness for God. And what a witness he was. John dressed in thick camel's hair with a heavy leather belt. And in case you've forgotten what camel's hair looks like, I've provided a picture for you. Uh, And that uh, he ate locusts, which is a good crunchy source of alternative protein, with wild honey to wash locusts down. Because what else would you have with locusts? And this uh, strange attire and diet, to us, may seem uh, culturally odd, but to all of John's audience, they would have known immediately what his clothes meant. I put there for you 2 Kings verse, chapter 1, verse 8. Uh, the clothing of the prophet Elijah, who was promised by God in Malachi 3 and 4 to come again. His clothes were the desert clothes of a desert prophet. And as this voice of the, in the wilderness spoke, God's people would have understood another significance about the desert. God's tender and alluring call for repentance is given in the desert. Think about Israel and how they, had to, they learned to put grumbling aside to trust God again. In the desert, God's Word produces springs of water from the rock and brings forth food from heaven to feed them. And out of the dust, God calls forth Israel, His Son. Hosea 2, 14, God wooed His people in the desert and spoke gently to them. And so the crowds coming out to hear John this voice in the wilderness would have understood that this man was speaking forth God's wooing words of tenderness for the first time in 400 years. And he was telling them about the true state of their hearts. Yes, they went to temple. Yes, they went to the synagogue. But now, again, God was speaking. And all this fulfilled what the angel Gabriel foretold. In Luke 1.17, he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, fulfilling the words of Malachi 4. And with his baptism, John's, uh, John was baptizing God's people as they responded in repentance. So all of that is the background that's needed when we jump into verse 19. So what is this exchange that takes place between this baptizer John and the priests and Levites. They ask him pointedly, who are you? And if they had heard the last 10 minutes, they should have known. And his, but his reply in verse 20 is actually quite strange. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed. In other words, he was giving as straightforward an answer as possible, I, John, am not the Christ. A second exchange follows as they ask Well, are you Elijah, the revivalist prophet? They looked at his attire. They had put two and two together. John is is clearly playing dress up as a prophet. His answer is no. Next question. Third try. Is he the prophet? Uh, Referring to what Moses had promised, Deuteronomy 18.18, that God would raise up another prophet like Moses. This was significant because Moses was the mediator of a covenant between God and Israel. So, John, are you a new Moses? Are you the promised prophet? Sorry, no. So, you can sense the exasperation. And in their question next, 
they finally show their hand. They reveal that these representatives have been sent on a fact-finding mission by the Pharisees, verse 24. The Pharisees were a small group of Jewish leaders known for how they interpreted the law and the oral traditions that interpreted the law and applied it to our lives. So basically, these were representatives of scholars whose influence came from teaching religious tradition. And they had sent out these uh, persons to check out John and his ministry to see what the big deal was and to report back. The great scholar F.F. Bruce clarifies what is happening here. These representatives were not sent to be friends with John. They had come to check out if he was a threat to authority and power. Bruce says, It is amazing that the attacks on the true servants of God come not from the secular crowd, but from religious ranks. Another Bible teacher says, Notice the irony. A God-sent man interrogated by men sent by men. On its own, human religion is always about control. Human religion is always threatened when God really shows up. When the young upstart Jesus of Nazareth threatens to overturn years of tradition and religious stability, we see the Pharisees do the same thing. And with John, they had not come to inquire sincerely. They weren't here to sit under his teaching. They weren't here to actually meet or get to know him. No, their messengers and reports were all about exerting control. The most tragic thing about Pharisaism is that it disables us from hearing God's wooing mercy. After 400 years of not hearing God, they actually learned to prefer not to hear God. Well, in our way, are we also deaf to what God is doing? Are we more interested in human religion, even as we gather here, than hearing from the living God? As a church, one way we can guard against Phariseeism, which is, friends, all too easy to creep into our bones, is to remind ourselves that as we gather we have come not to enforce religious practice, but to know the living God. The Bible is His Word to us. As we read it, it is not a scholarly exercise. We want to hear from Him. It is our challenge then, as we have God's Word open, to bear our hearts to the living God and to practice sincere, humble, repentance before Him and confess our sins to one another. We must avoid man-made religion and therefore end up missing out on what God has to say to us. Well, in contrast to these Pharisees, we see a very different example in John. His eyes are fixed not on men. His eyes are fixed on God. Verse 20, he wants to make it clear to the religious establishment, I am not Messiah. I am not the Lord's Christ. John wants no confusion to arise from his confession. And there is a lesson here for us. In John's mind, the worst thing in the world that could happen for him 
is that the messenger becomes a distraction to the message. The last thing he wants is for people to think that I, John, am the Messiah. What a horrible thought. Can you see the razor-sharp uh, focus of John, his Christ-centeredness? And this is typical of John. Later on, we read in John 3 that when Jesus' ministry is starting to surpass John's and more people are preferring Jesus' baptism to John's baptism, uh, his disciples say to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. And John's reply is deeply secure and full of trust. A person cannot receive one thing unless it is given from heaven. He is confident that God is sovereign and good. And in chapter 3, verse 28, we see this amazing perspective from the man of God. I am not the bridegroom. I am the friend of the bridegroom. And John says, I know that it's not my party, it's not my wedding, and he is full of joy that Jesus' ministry is succeeding even if it means his own ministry declines. John typifies the words of Psalm 115, not to us, not to us, but to your name, O Lord, be the glory. And do you catch that verse in John 3.30? He must increase, but I must decrease. Friends, I hold this verse very close to my heart because I went through a period of time in my life where I watched a lot of my friends get married while I was single. I was best man, I think, maybe four or five times in a year. And that year, this verse taught me that if I really loved my brothers, I would be the friend of the bridegroom and I would share in their joy and forget myself. And, and I had a very brief foretaste of what this meant, that John felt more freedom, more joy, more satisfaction if Jesus was glorified at his expense. Friends, do we love the Lord like that? That he must increase and I will decrease. Many will know the 28 year old Christian martyr Jim Elliott who lost his life in Ecuador sharing the gospel with the Alka people. And he famously wrote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. But even fewer of us will have heard of Bert Elliott, Jim's brother and his wife Colleen. Now, the Christian writer Randy Elkhorn writes that if you Google Bert Elliott, you'll find less than 70 uh, entries about him. But the man and his wife have planted more than 170 churches and all the way into their 80s continued to minister in Peru where they had done so their whole lives. And Bert describes Jim Elliott as a great meteor streaking through the sky and Alcon says that Bert Elliot is like the faint star that rises faithfully night after night, always doing the same boring, faithful thing. Bert Elliot, I think, typifies the example of John the Baptist, 
a model of joyful self-forgetfulness. In his answer to the religious representatives, John 1.23, he says, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. He quotes Isaiah 40. I'm just a desert voice announcing the coming of the Lord. Contrast John's simple, confident answer with the shrewd question of the religious representatives. Verse 25, well, if you're not the Christ or Elijah or the prophet, then why are you baptizing? Well, in one sense, that question is actually fair because John's water baptism is incomplete. It is only a human ritual, and John acknowledges that, yes, something more actually is needed. But in questioning John, these representatives are not friendly. They are actually challenging the man's right to minister at all. Since you don't have these roles, nobody gave you authority and permission, why are you baptizing at all? What right do you have to baptize? John could have answered in the words of Gabriel himself, Luke 1.17, I've come in the spirit and power of Elijah. That's a pretty good answer. Or, as Jesus says in Matthew 11, if you are willing to receive it, John is Elijah to come. But look at how the servant of the Lord responds. They thumb John down, and he does not resist. He'll bow, but only to lift Jesus up. Yes, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. He who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now, to untie sandal straps was so degrading that disciples of a rabbi were actually not allowed to untie sandals. That was reserved for servants. And John is saying, I can't even be Messiah's shoe-carrying servant. Friends, how do we get a Christ-centered attitude like John's? Have you ever been verbally pressed against the wall and felt the heat of the conversation as someone challenges you and, frankly, disrespects you? Have you lashed out in anger activated your inner lawyer, responded with sarcasm? What gives us this inner poise? Well, the secret to John the Baptist's self-confidence is that he understands the meaning of Advent. He is unshakably confident that Messiah will come and that God will keep every one of His promises. And this is key John staked his identity and destiny that God would keep his promise about Messiah. If Messiah comes, then John is a voice in the wilderness. If Messiah does not come, nothing matters at all. Everything changes once Messiah comes. But who had taught John this? The answer is his parents. Zechariah and Elizabeth had taught him the ancient promises in Isaiah, Malachi, and the other scriptures. That's why he quotes Isaiah 40. And he would have known the words of Gabriel, so he would have known Luke 1, what we have in scripture. And the lesson for us is to raise our children and to cultivate hearts that trust God's word and hope in him. And the degree to which our hearts learn to fully hope in God and His promises, we'll have the inner poise that we need because we know who God is and that He will keep His word. 
Friends, is our hope and joyful self-forgetfulness in the hope of Messiah. Would you be known as someone who has staked your life on the Word of God? Or are you more like the religious Pharisees who check in and out of religion and are more interested in control and the respect of men? Are we plainly not interested in God? Or worse, even oppose Him? Well, while it seems that the man who was not the Christ has everything figured out, our text tells us actually that there were a lot of things John did not know. And we'll see that in Hedabi, the Christ who was a lamb. Scripture says that the next day, John saw Jesus, his cousin, coming. And from that important encounter, John gives this testimony, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is He of whom I spoke. But do you notice verse 31? I myself did not know Him. Now what does that tell us? Though Jesus saw His relative coming, and He had known what had happened uh, in His birth, He had known that Jesus was virgin-born, He did not know that Jesus was Messiah. And so He says, He baptizes with water that Messiah might be revealed. John had witnessed something in verse 32 that made everything click in his head. He writes, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on Jesus. Verse 32 again, I myself did not know Him. So, John was surprised that Messiah was his cousin. And what is it that made everything click? We'll need the parallel text in Matthew 3. John had declined initially to baptize Jesus because he knew his cousin was virgin-born. He knew the words of Gabriel, and he knew that he himself was a sinner in need of rescue. But Matthew 3.15, it was Jesus that insists that he needed to be baptized by John. Why? To fulfill all righteousness. In other words, though Jesus did not need to be baptized, he submitted to the baptism of John, not because he had sin to wash away, but because he had righteousness that needed to be perfected through obedience. Hebrews 5 puts it this way, though he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered as God's high priest. In baptism, Jesus becomes our high priest as he identifies with us and heaven parts and God Himself says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit appears as a dove and anoints Him, not for a while, but permanently, never to leave. And John, there in the water with his cousin, hearing all of this, says, I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. John goes on to testify that because the Son of God has the Spirit dwelling on Him, He is able to baptize us with the same Holy Spirit. Acts 18 and 19 tell us that there were others who were baptized into John's baptism, and then they needed to be baptized into Jesus and were thus filled with the Holy Spirit. And many in the church today fixate on how when that happened, they 
were filled with ecstatic experiences and spoke in tongues. But frankly, that misses the point. The key is that the baptism of John was completed when they came to understand that it was the baptism into Jesus, baptism of the Holy Spirit that was actually needed. And how does that come about? John 1.12 verse 13 tells us that to all who received Jesus, to all who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Friends, if you are not born again by the Holy Spirit, this is how. Confess your sins, repent of them, and believe in the name of Jesus, the Son of God. How do we know if we've born again? At least four things will be evident. First, we'll learn to love Christ, our Savior, as the treasure of our heart. Second, we'll start to hate sin and worldliness. Third, we'll start to desire God's Word and the things of God. We'll want to know Him. And fourth, we'll love God's people just as God does. I took these from 1 John. You can read the entire letter and there are at least those four marks there. Friends, you may have attended church your whole life, but it is possible to confuse human religion with the new birth that Jesus gives. Unless we are born again, we will not see the kingdom of God. The great evangelist George Whitfield was asked by his friend, why do you always preach that you must be born again? And Whitfield replied with a glare at his friend, and he said, because you must be born again. Friends, if you're not sure if you've been born again, I'd love to get in touch with you and talk more about this. If you are a born-again believer and you have not yet gotten baptized by water into the church, I encourage you to do so as soon as you are confident that you have been born again. It's the joy of the church to baptize those who profess faith and it is our joy to affirm the reality of new birth in that person's life. It's one of the best things about being the church, to celebrate with that external sign the internal reality. And I encourage all of us as GBC members, the next time you see a baptism, praise God using the words of John 1.12. To all who receive Him, to all who believe in His name, He gave the right to be called children of God. And so we are. But there is one more key truth about John's testimony about Christ that holds everything together, and that's the very first thing John says. The Son of God on whom the Spirit rests and baptized, but the very first thing he said was that the Christ was a lamb. When John grasps who Jesus is, he bursts out and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, why would the Christ be a lamb? Lambs are not inspiring. They are helpless and they are cuddly and they poop a lot. But this is the truth, that it is the Christ who will take away the sins of the world. How? By the shedding of blood 
for the remission of sins. Recall that in Exodus, it was the blood of the Lamb painted on the doorpost that enabled Israel to escape God's judgment. And because Messiah will be a lamb, He will expiate our sins. He will take our sins far away from us. Psalm 103 verse 12, As far as the east is from the west, so far will He remove our transgression from us. By His death, the lamb will expiate our sin and bear it on Himself in suffering. John knew, as all of us do, Isaiah 53, that speaks of the Lamb, that bears the full weight of sin, weight that rips Him apart and crushes Him in the work of atonement. The Lamb will be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, though it is us that God have astray. We are the ones like wandering sheep who have left God, but God's own perfect Lamb will bear all our guilt and shame. He will be the Lamb led to the slaughter on our behalf. John's confession reminds us that in the Christmas narrative, Mary's baby son received gifts from wise men. Do you remember them? Gifts of gold for a king, frankincense for a priest, And finally, myrrh, the burial perfume used for the sacrificial death. Bring myrrh as a gift the next time you go to a baby shower. Give myrrh. Messiah will be a king, a priest, but most of all, God's lamb, born to die. He gives his life that others receive it. He is laid low that others might be lifted up. And in death, as well as in birth, mild he lays his glory by. Born that men no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give us second birth. But Advent doesn't end here at the manger. It doesn't even end at the cross. It doesn't even end at the empty tomb. No, it ends actually in the throne room of God. The Lamb's work is most finally explained in John's last book. And in Revelation 5, John describes this throne room scene of heaven. He peels back the curtains and he shows us this vision of the Ancient of Days seated on a throne with a mighty sealed scroll, unopened and unread and In my mind, I think almost of like these Chinese scrolls, but I know the Roman scrolls look a little bit different, but they are sealed so that you can't open them and the decrees of the sovereign cannot be read because it's sealed. All of God's plans for salvation, for blessing, for hope, all of them remain unopened and John weeps at this sight. Because no one is found worthy to reveal and bring God's plans to pass. And then in verse 5, one of the elders says, Weep no more. Behold, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, these titles that describe his kingship, he has conquered so that the scroll can be opened and its seven seals unlocked. And all of God's wonderful plans can come to pass. And who is this that comes forward? 
Revelation 5, verse 6, John says in the midst of the throne room, I saw a lamb standing as though it was slain. The lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. He is the one that reaches out, takes the scroll from the right hand of the Ancient of Days. Do you understand this? The one who is both king, son of God, royal king of Israel, he is the lamb of God. The only one worthy to, un, to unroll that scroll that God's plans come forth. He alone is worthy to do God's will. And in response, all of heaven bursts into worship. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. His blood ransoms people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Praise Him. Amen and Amen. Friends, I don't know what emotional baggage and burden you have carried into worship today, but this is the good news that according to John, and I hope it lifts your spirit and cheers your heart, that though this world is broken and the shadows deepen over this world, behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. He atones and saves and He will achieve all of God's glorious purposes to redeem, ransom, rescue, and restore. Christ has come. Christ will come again. And there is nothing broken that He cannot fix. Nothing tarnished He cannot renew. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and join uh, to present a song that I've been very eager to share. Uh, it, it describes this scene. This of heaven and the questions that are asked and the answers that are given. And friends, I hope that in these moments you will think deeply on the questions and because we cannot sing, if you will find the freedom in your heart to answer them in the most natural and logical way, I hope this song speaks to you what this entire message has been about, that Jesus Christ is worthy 